tonight, we're going to be looking at the book of Colossians. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll hit it hard. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its truths. We thank You for the insight, the guidance, the leadership, the clarity You give to us through it. And we ask that as we talk about Your Word tonight, Lord, that You would open up its meaning to us in new and rich ways. My prayer every week, Lord, the same thing is that we'll be so stirred by what we hear about this book that we'll want to rush home and read it for ourselves and to make it our own. We ask you for that grace, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Colossians. Who wrote the book of Colossians? Uh, very clearly, verse 1, it begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The very last verse, verse 18 of chapter 4, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Why did he phrase it like that? Because he used what we call a, a scribe or a menusis. Basically, uh, very few people were, would write their own letters. They would basically dictate them to people who are professionals. And what Paul, to give authenticity to his letter, sits down and signs the end of the letters so that his readers would know it had come from his lips by the assurance of his hand. Um, to whom was he writing? He tells us in verse 2, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, Colossae was located about 120 miles east of Ephesus. Ephesus was very close to the coast. Uh, and uh, you go inland east and you would come to the city of Colossae in what the time was known as the Roman region. Uh, today it's southwest Turkey. Then it was called Asia Minor. And um, we find that the city of Colossae was really a, a one of a triad of, of cities in that area. The other ones were Laodicea, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation chapter 3, the church of Laodicea. is One it was a, a close neighbor, and the other one was Hierapolis, uh, which is, is not mentioned. But they were really uh, very wealthy cities in those days. They were on the east-west trade route. They specialized in a certain kind of dyed wool that was all the fashion by the wealthy and rich. And there were many ways in which they became enriched by uh, not even what we would be, might be surprising is tourism. Hierapolis had, had baths that people would go for their health. And so they were cities that were uh, really, really doing quite well. And uh, what's interesting is they ended up having a very high concentration of Jews. In fact, uh, some scholars say there was as many as 50,000 Jews lived in this one small geographical region, uh, mainly because uh, a couple hundred years ago, one of the Greek kings basically transported about 2,000 of them that region. They multiplied, became very wealthy, very successful, very established, and, and very uh, impactful on the area. It was there that we find uh, churches were planted in each of these three cities uh, during the time of Paul's third missionary journey. But it's important to know that Paul had not planted these churches. In fact, he spent three years in the city of Ephesus, which I said was 120 miles to the west. Uh, Ephesus was the fourth largest city of the Roman Empire, and Paul was there from about 53 to 56 A.D., and by his own admission, he tells us that he hadn't visited these cities. He said in chapter 2, verse 1 of Colossians, he says, I write to you, write you to know, excuse me, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. In other words, during the time that Paul was in Ephesus, 
It appears that he sent out missionaries to many of the surrounding cities and villages. And probably about seven or eight years before the writing of this letter, he tells us that there was a man by the name of Epaphras who went to these cities and started churches. In verse 3 of chapter 1, he says, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. In fact, uh, twice in chapter 4, Paul makes reference to himself at the time of the writing of this letter as being in chains. And it is Epaphras who basically is bringing, or one of those who is bringing the letter uh, that comes to Paul. But in chapter 4, he tells us, pray for us that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. And again, in verse 18, he goes on to say, remember my chains. Clear references to his imprisonment so that we pretty much conclude that this was written during Paul's first Roman imprisonment sometime between 60 and 62 AD. And because of the similarity to the letters to the Ephesians that we talked about previously, uh, we find that it's strongly suggested that both the letter to Ephesians and the Colossians was written at about the same time. I mean, they were probably intended to be what we called circular letters. You may not refer, remember that term, but these are letters that were supposed to be carried to more than one church and read as a kind of an open letter to various congregations. In fact, Paul tells us essentially that in verse 16 of chapter 4. He says, after this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. So there was a letter that was written to the church of Laodicea. We have no record of it. But this is one of those things that really informs us that Paul wrote a great deal more letters than have survived to the present day. Um, We just conclude that the Holy Spirit basically cherry-picked the ones that he wanted to become part of our canon, and the other ones were lost to time like most literature is. But like the letter to the Philippians, it was delivered by, remember, Tychicus, or Tuchicus, as it's pronounced correctly, and also by a man by the name of Onesimus. And we'll learn a little bit more about Onesimus when we get into the letter to Philemon. But both these men uh, were from probably Colossia and were familiar. He says in chapter 3, verse 7, that Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, whom he goes on to say, you know very well. So let's come to some of the facts and the details around the letter. But it brings us really to a much more important question is, why was Paul writing the letter? And that's, that's a question I think sometimes we just read a text and we don't think about what was the original motivation. And I always like to remind people that Paul wasn't just sitting, you know, <clears throat> having a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and suddenly he got grabbed by the Holy Spirit and just started writing blindly something as the Holy Spirit moved. He wrote intentionally to respond to very specific situations and problems that were being faced within particular churches. And that's why they're so uh, very practical for you and I, because the same problems they dealt with are the problems that people have always dealt with, and the church, of course, has always dealt with it, and Paul's counsel and guidance is extremely helpful. He gives us two reasons why he wrote this particular letter. The first one 
was to strengthen them in the faith, particularly to clarify doctrinally who Jesus was. In fact, in, in verses 9 and 10 in chapter 1, he starts off by saying, Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will, and that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Later on, he'll tell them that knowledge comes through the Word of God. And then secondly, we'd say, well, why was he emphasizing this kind of if informational uh, progress in their life? And that's where the second reason comes out. It appears that it was necessitated by the presence of what we'd call a, a syncretic heresy. Now, what's the word syncretic word? It comes from the, the word syncre, uh, syncre, uh, syncretism, the idea that uh, you take two things that should not be brought together and you commingle them. It's kind of like the idea that pleasure and pain are supposed to be two distinct things. If you feel pleasure when you're in pain, you're one sick puppy, let me tell you. It's not supposed to work that way. But, that, but it's that kind of idea that you blend things together that really shouldn't be matched together. And the idea when we talk about a philosophy or a theology, it's taking things that really are kind of diametric and, and making them one. And so that you, you, you lose the distinction and you create something that's kind of a, uh, an adulterated hybrid. And what Paul was concerned with, and I think we still see, is that people have always tried to create their own theological recipes. And they blend things together that were never meant by God to be on the same plate, and especially should not be eaten. And yet that's what happens, and it leads to spiritual illness it leads to not only just that somebody believes something falsely, but the problem of believing something that's not true is that you start making decisions that won't work out well. Because one of the dynamics of truth, and I think it's important for us to just to think this through a little bit, but one of the things that makes something true is because it's real, and, it, and therefore because it's real, it actually works. If you believe something that's not true, then you're believing in something that isn't real, and you're going to be, find yourself trying to support and stand upon something that won't sustain you, and it will collapse underneath the weight of your life. And so the idea of Jesus said, you know the truth and the truth will set you free. The idea is that when I follow the truth, my life will end up being blessed. Now we refer to that often as the life of faith. What is my faith in? And not just anything, it's faith in the true or the trueness of what God has said in his word. And what the Bible promises, and I think what many of us have found from experience, is when I put my faith in God's Word, especially the words of Jesus as being truth, in the absolute sense, not just in some situations or for some people, but when I believe that God is absolutely true and His Word can be trusted in all situations, it will prove itself out in my life. It'll prove itself out to be effective. My life will be what we often say, blessed by God. Now, that doesn't mean that you'll be rich and famous and never get a cold, but the simple fact is when you look at the traje trajectory of your life, you realize that God has caused my soul to prosper because I have walked in His truth. 
when people believe doctrinally things that aren't true and they put their trust in something that we would call doctrinal error, it almost always, if not always, proves itself out to be an error because it fails you at some point. And so I think for an example, there was for a long time a theology that simply said that if you name it, you can claim it. And there were people who just believe with all their heart, if I can profess it, because they taught that as a Christian, you are a child of God, and therefore God lives in you, therefore what you speak will come true just the same way God spoke the universe into existence. And so they'd say, if you don't say, I feel bad, because you're creating illness in your body. You need to say, even though my nose is running, <clears throat> I'm running a fever, and I'm coughing, and I may have bronchitis, if not pneumonia, in Jesus' name, I confess that I am healthy. And suddenly, the idea was that your illness would go away. Uh, one, my pastor shared a situation where one particular lady that he did a funeral for <clears throat> was so convinced of that that she confessed that her dead husband was going to come to life at the funeral, so convinced of it, she showed up with his shoes because she didn't want to have to walk home after he'd been resurrected on, in, in stocking, stocking feet. She believed it with all of her heart until they closed the casket and then he took it to the cemetery and they put it in the ground and they covered up and then she had a complete emotional collapse because she put all of her faith believing that that was what the Bible taught. But the Bible doesn't teach that. <laughs> I mean, I think if you read it, you realize the Bible doesn't teach that whatever you say has to come to pass because you're, you know, you're God now. No, the reality is that there are things that God clearly exclaims, and one of the things He makes very clear is He's giving once to live and then to die. The death, I mean, I hope I'm not breaking anybody's or ruining anybody's day, but death is in your future, you know, and I'm not talking about the person sitting next to you. I mean, like personally, it's in your future. There is a date on a calendar that's marked uh, that is your last day upon this planet. Hopefully, the rapture will come first, uh, <clears throat> but nonetheless, you are terminal. You are suffering from a terminal disease called sin, and it will take your life one day. But the idea that I can control that is, is fallacious. What I do know, the Scripture teaches, is God is in control of my life. So the point is that sometimes people say, well, what difference does it make if you don't believe the same thing or if what you believe isn't exactly right? The difference is, is you will make decisions for your life based upon what you believe to be true. And Jesus put it very simply. He says, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, do I believe that God can heal people? Absolutely. Do I believe that I can command Him to do it? Not on your life. But I can ask Him, and I've seen Him do it. And I don't know whether He's going to heal somebody I pray for or you pray for or not, but I know that He is under no obligation to behave according to my will. It's just the opposite, the Scripture teaches. It tells me that I'm supposed to bring myself into submission to His will, and I'm supposed to rejoice in whatever that will is. So it's, it's, and when you approach life from that point of view saying, God, I thank you even for things that I don't want to be happening in my life right now because you've made a promise that you cause everything to work together for my good, I believe, God, that this bad thing, and it is a bad thing, is going to somehow work out to be a good thing because I have surrendered my life to you and I've surrendered my, my destiny to you and I believe that your plan for my life is better even though at the moment <clears throat> I feel like arguing with you about it. You know, I mean, that's just, that's just the honesty of the reality. But God is in control, not me. 
And that's part of the dynamic. When Jesus prays the greatest faith prayer in the Bible, you know where it was? It's in the garden. It's at Gethsemane. And he says, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Knowing what was ahead of him, the death, not just the death of the cross, but becoming the, the sin bearer for the transgressions of all mankind from before and to the end of time. And he says, Lord, if there's any way I can avoid becoming the object of sin, then, then relieve me from this, but not what I want, but you, what you want. And that becomes the highest point of faith. Well, <clears throat> rather than before I get too far down that other message, uh, let me get back to what we're talking about here. It's really interesting because that's why he brings this warning in, in verse 2 of chapter 2. He says, I, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. The eloquence of the argument is never the basis upon which we believe. It's the testimony of Scripture. Because he says, see to it further on, verse 8, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies. The word philosophy there doesn't mean a class that you take at a university. It literally means that your, your view of, of life, it does, creates you with a false view of what is real and true and good. Now, the exact nature of this particular heresy is, is somewhat of a mystery. Um, we have to kind of piece it together by the things that Paul said about it and against it. But as I said, it was kind of a syncretism, kind of there's, there's Jewish theology in there, there's Gnostic, which was a Greek philosophy of, of, of self-salvation, and also there's Christian theology, kind of all mixed together. Um, basically, they denied the deity of Christ, they denied that He was God, uh, they denied that He was the supreme being, and that His death on the cross was sufficient for saving a soul. It implied that basically there was human effort required to get saved. I, I call it the Jesus plus something uh, uh, theology, that Jesus is not enough in and himself. You also have to have Jesus and something else added to it. In the case that we've talked about in the past, the Judaizers, it's Jesus plus becoming a Jew or being circumcised. To some, it's, it's Jesus and doing works, or it's Jesus being uh, a member in this particular organization or this church or through a set of rituals or any number of things that people add to. Essentially what it does is it diminishes the importance of Jesus and makes the human agent that's presenting the doctrine as or more important than Jesus himself. And that really is kind of the goal. Uh, what it does is it, it, it replaced faith in Christ alone for, with mysticism and with asceticism. Asceticism meaning this idea of self-denial. Uh, you, you fast, you deny yourself of any kind of uh, pleasure, enjoyment, almost the idea the Gnostics taught that pleasure itself was evil and therefore anything that made you feel good was bad, and, and, and leaving people quite confused usually. But also there's a lot of legalism things where he says in, in chapter 2 and verse 16, he says, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or by what you drink or with regards to religious festivals, or new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. This all implies a lot of Jewish regulations where you're basically saying you can't eat certain things because they are in and of themselves unclean and will actually separate you from God. So 
you know, ham sandwich right straight down the tubes to H-E-double-L hockey sticks, you know. It's, it's, and he says, and do not let anyone who delights in false humility, it's interesting, a false humility, it's this pretentiousness, this, this sense of, of being sanctimonious, that somehow they're closer to God because of something about their behavior or their person. And he says, and also the worship of angels. It's interesting. I remember year, when I first moved to Spokane many years ago, there was a very popular book uh, across the country called Angels on Assignment. And it, it so elevated angels that people actually started praying to angels. And I just want to go on the record as saying, you know, there, there's no place in the Scriptures anywhere that suggests we should worship angels or pray to angels or pray to saints or anybody else. There's only one individual who should, we should pray to, and that's God. Everybody else is a waste of time and off limits, basically. But essentially, there's these kind of dynamics, this worshiping of angels. And he goes on to say they have rules like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He called it self-imposed worship, false humility, and harsh treatment of the body. So it's, you know, it's like I say, we try to kind of piece it together. What was it exactly? Maybe it's not so important that we know exactly what it is. It's more important that we understand that your body is not evil. And this is the concept that many times Christians get and think that that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that your body is evil. It says you have within your body a sin nature that often influences you to do evil things with your body, but the body isn't evil, you know? I don't have anything against marijuana. I just don't think you should smoke it, eat it, or ingest it in any way possible. I mean, the problem is, is that THC and your blood system should never come together in the same place. Bad choice, bad idea. But I don't go around hating the marijuana plant. It's never harmed me. It's not the problem of the plant. It's not the problem of the drug. It's not the problem of the alcohol or whatever you want to blame it on. Those are inert objects that really have no will or power themselves. It's my sin nature that motivates me to use those things in a way that is toxic and abusive and unhealthy for me as an individual, mentally, physically, and otherwise. And so it's important, again, to make that kind of distinction because sometimes we can almost get the mindset that my body is evil and therefore if I like the way that new shirt looks on me, that I've just sinned against God. You know, it's even to the point where some groups say, well, women should never wear makeup. I disagree totally. I think it does an amazing job of improving many women's appearance, and I want to encourage you to keep it up, <laughs> you know? But I've never wanted to go out and commit, become a mass murderer because someone had makeup on, you know what I mean? We draw these kind of conclusions and comparisons. A nice haircut is a nice haircut, you know? Those things are, are really kind of inert. They're not essential. And sometimes we make that into big issues. Christianity has been guilty of that, oftentimes, of making things that God really doesn't care about into major issues. And I think that that becomes misleading, becomes error. The problem is, is if I do things with my body that are contrary to what the Word of God says, Paul said, it's sin in me that's motivating the action, but my body is not evil in fact, it's created in the image of God, is it not? My body is created in God's image. God delights in me, 
but he doesn't like what comes out of me sometimes. And I know it's hard for you to believe because I know I walk sinlessly perfect before you. But, you know, nonetheless, we'll keep it as our little secret. But at the heart of Paul's argument isn't so much the negative aspects of the false theology is the failure to understand the really great central truth. And that's in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he, he lays it out. He says, for in Christ all the fullness of God lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Two things that are really important here. One is that Jesus is the completion. The word fullness there means the, the complete, the totality, the end of all discussion. He is the fullness of God in, in human flesh. And He has given that fullness to you. He's imparted that fullness to you that you might live the life that God has ordained for you. Well, let's look at it, how He lays this out in, in a progressive argument uh, in, in His outline because He begins by first and foremost answering the question, who is Jesus? There's a series of very uh, uh, logical questions he answered here. Who is Jesus? And he says in verse 15 of chapter 1 that he is the visible image of the invisible God. God became flesh that we might have a visible representation of who he is, that his, he is the exact representation, the, the firstborn of all creation. Now, there's been a lot of false theology out of that statement, the word firstborn, because we translate it firstborn, and we think of firstborn as the first child born, but in the Greek world, it's the word prototokos, and it, it implies not first in order alone, but first in preeminence or importance. In other words, it's basically saying he is preeminent, he is above and superior to everything in all of the created universe. He says, because by him everything was created. He was the creator. He is before all things, and, he, and in him all things hold together. The very molecular atomic structure of you is consisting right now by his power. He's holding you together. And, and we find that the book, at the end of the book of Revelation, God decides that he's going to stop holding, and it's all going to fly apart and then he's going to reconfigure a new heaven and a new earth. But this thing that you are right now and everything you see around you consists what the scientists call atomic glue. What is atomic glue? We have to go down to uh, Lobby Hobby, I think. Is that Hobby Lobby or what that place is called? <laughs> anyway, you know, buy a jar? No, it's not something that we can see, but that's the whole point. They don't have a good term for it. They don't really know ultimately what it is, and so they just simply say there's something that causes it all to consist. And Paul is telling us who that something is. It's Jesus. He's holding it all together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from, uh, among, from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the, the supremacy. This is so foundational theologically, but also is foundational philosophically. Theology and philosophy are, are, are close, but they're separate. Theology is talking about what we know or what we believe about God. Philosophy is how we take that knowledge and apply it to our lives. 
So that if I live my life with this overriding understanding that God, that Jesus is supreme over everything, it frees me from the tyranny of trying to be that place myself. You see, the problem with humanism is it makes man the supreme object of the universe. And in that, selfishness becomes the driving passion of man's life. But the Bible says, no, it's not all about you. It's all about Jesus. And your, your goal in life should be to live for the fulfillment of his exaltation, that the world might know that he is the supreme being. In fact, later on in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity, or literally of God himself, lives in bodily form. So that not only is he the God, a supreme being of, of all things, he is also the only Savior available to us. In verse 13 of chapter 2, he goes on and says, You were dead in your sins, but God made you alive. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. This phrase, written code, we often think, well, he's talking about the Mosaic law, and by extension he is, but the phrase had a very specific meaning in the Greek world. The written code referred to a bill that itemized your financial obligations to a debtor or to a creditor. And he says, we had this, this debt that we could not pay, and he paid it. We had a debt we owed, and he paid what he didn't owe that we might be set free. And that's the whole point. And essentially, the implication is, since your debt is paid, why are you still living as if you have to pay off your own debt? You see, there's a, there's a distinct difference between motivators in our life. What motivates me to walk with God? Do I walk with God because I love Him, or do I walk with God because I fear Him? Reminds me years ago when we would go to Russia and we'd stay in these hotel rooms and we would get calls in the middle of the night, usually prostitutes working in the hotels soliciting uh, clients. And one of the friends of mine got a call in the middle of the night and this woman, you know, basically they would say, service, you know, was the line they used. And he goes, no. And she goes, well, why not? And he said, well, two reasons. Number one, I fear God and I love my wife. And he said, no, let me rephrase that. I love God, and I fear my wife. <laughs> he said, even she started laughing. <laughs> but, you know, we realize that there are some things that we do motivated by love, and there's some things that we do out of motivated fear. And when you think about being married to someone, which would you prefer to be their motivation? Really? Don't we prefer somebody that says, I do this because I love you? It's so much better than somebody saying, I do this because you scare me to death. You know, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living wife. You know, so it's like nobody wants to be loved or reacted to, related to. And God says, why are you living as if it's, you're, so, you're trying to pay off some debt that you owe when I have already paid the debt? I want you to be doing what you're doing because you love me. God loves a, a, a gracious and joyful giver. He does find no pleasure in people saying, okay, I'm going to pay the tax that I'm owed. This is my bill that I'm paying to God. God loves a cheerful giver. 
And that's simply the, the difference in perception. Do I understand? This is Paul's argument saying, don't you understand that debt of sin has been paid once and for all and forever, and you've been set free? That regardless of what you feel like you see when you look in the mirror, that's not truth. If somebody comes to you and says, well, you're wicked or you're evil, that's not truth. When Satan comes and says, you know, you're not worth anything and you're a loser and you're a failure, that's not truth. Truth is God loves you. He made you in his image. He has a plan for your life and he's going to magnify and glorify himself both through your life and even through your death. And there's nothing that hell or the enemy or any man can ever do to oppose that. And the question is, which one are you going to choose to be the truth that governs your life? Because you see, there's many Christians who live this burdensome life because they, all they see of themselves in their emotional mirror is what's wrong with them. And believe me, that well is so deep, you're never going to get to the bottom of that one. But rather, he says, I want you to understand that no matter how deep that hole is, I filled it with my blood on the cross, and you stand now clean before me. Don't live like you're still trying to fill that hole. I've forgiven you. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> That's why in verse chapter 1 early, going, kind of going back in verse 19, he said, For God through him reconciled to himself everything. Everything that was displaced and disorganized, he brought it all together within himself, making peace through his blood shed on the cross to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. God, by, by Jesus dying on the cross and you believing that he died on your, for your sins, he says you have peace with God, that he presents you to the Father without any blemish, without even an accusation. Let the enemy accuse all day long. It's going nowhere because God says it's been paid. It's been paid in full. Paul moves on. He says, so this is who Jesus is. Who is Paul? And he says to them in, in chapter 1, verse 25, he says, I have become your servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. To this end, he says, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. And then he goes on to say, not only is that who I am, this is the purpose of my life. In chapter 2, verse 2, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, even namely Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures and the knowledge of God. And that's why in verse 6 he goes on in chapter 2 says, so just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live him. That verse had, had, was always powerful to me because when I first gave my life to Christ, I felt forgiven and it was just the most amazing cleansing feeling I could ever have imagined. I had no idea how much weight of sin I was carrying in my life until Jesus took it off of my shoulders. It was an amazing liberation. But then I began to grow in the Lord, supposedly, grow in knowledge, and I got involved with a church which uh, basically 
said that you could lose your salvation if you, you know, looked the wrong way at the wrong moment. And I, it, the, being a Christian was walking this tightrope. And I realized all that joy went away. And Paul's basically stepping back saying, you've, you've lost the joy. Why? That's not how I taught you. This stuff that you're hearing, that's not what you were taught. And that's the way they always come in. They always come and say, well, do you want to go in and know the deeper things of God? <laughs> Most of us are not realizing our own spiritual pride go, well, yeah, I want, I want that advanced knowledge. And we fall right into it. But again, thirdly, he asks, so who are you in actual fact? Well, chapter 2, verse 10, you have been given fullness, completeness, you're complete. Oh, I know. You don't think you are, but I'm telling you, God says you are. You're complete in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In Him you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, buried with Him in baptism, raised with Him through your faith in the power of God. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. He canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And then he goes on in chapter 3, but to go on and say, since then you have been raised with Christ and seated at the right hand of God. You have been raised with Christ and seated at the right hand of God. So then he finally says, how then should I live my life? If these are things are true, how should I live my life? And he begins by saying, by having a new attitude. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, set your heart on things above. Set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things. Stop living as if your, your fulfillment is going to come by what you accomplish and experience in this life. It doesn't. It comes from that relationship with God. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, your sin nature. Let that just wither and die. Put on the new self as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I love the word. Let the peace of Christ. Allow it to happen. Allow it to happen. You know, some of us are so addicted to worry and so captive of fear that we wouldn't allow God to give us peace in our hearts because we're afraid that He can't be trusted. <laughs> I've got to keep my hands on the wheels because the wheels of my life, I have to steer my life because if I don't, you know, and I give it over to God, we know His driving problems. He'll end up driving me right over to the missionary field in the Congo. I read about that. You know. And basically Paul's saying, you know, if you want the peace of God, you want to have real peace in your heart, then let God bring peace into your life. Stop feeling like you have to control your life and become dependent upon Him. And I love how he goes on in, in verse 17 of that chapter 3. He says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And again, verse 23, whatever you do, he repeats that phrase again, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. It is the Lord you are serving. So he says you need to begin to take a whole new attitude in your life. That secondly, he says you need to understand you have a new aptitude. 
He says in verse 12, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive as the Lord forgave you. God says, I have given you the power to be that person. Gentle, humble, loving, meek, gracious, forgiving. You have, well, you don't know what was done to me. I can't forgive. I know, I don't know what happened to you. But I know this, you can't forgive, but if you allow God to work in your life, He will create forgiveness in your heart, and you'll have the pleasure of letting go of resentments and bitterness and hurt and all the rest. That not only do I have a new attitude and a new aptitude, I have a new admonition where he tells me, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Letting the word, allowing again the word of God to reign in your life. Well, let's put it this way. If you never read it and you never listen to it and you never let anybody speak it into your life, you're not letting the word of God dwell in you. You know, it's, you got to let it in. You got to make space for it. But he says, let that happen, and you'll find that God's admonitions, His instructions in your life will transform your world. And then finally, he says, because it'll result in new actions. And he gets real specific about areas. He starts meddling at this point. In verse, chapter 3, verse 18, he says, wives, submit to your husbands. That's probably about it. We can stop there. Lord, we just... <laughs> And then he says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. But fathers, do not embitter your children. <coughs> Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Do it not only when their eyes are on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. And, and master, provide for your slaves what, with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. You know, that passage had more to do with the end of slavery than all the laws that were ever passed. Men begin to read that and say, there's something inherently wrong. How would I want to be treated? I would not want to be a slave. He goes on, devote yourselves to prayer. Being watchful and thankful and be wise in the way that you act towards others. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, if you set out here tonight and go home and say, I'm going to start always speaking with grace, you're not going to be very successful. Jesus, uh, the bun of the heart the mouth speaks. If the heart is overwhelmed with the grace that God has showed you, then you'll find yourself treating other people graciously. When you have the peace of God living in your heart, you'll be peaceable towards other people. But when there's rancor and antagonism and irritability and all this stuff, it's because you're not at peace in your own heart. You're not allowing God's grace to really move within you. And it leads to division and strife and conflict. You know how it is. <laughs> you, you know, if you're having, you're, you, you wake up in the morning and just everything is going, well, the, the, this morning, four phone calls in a row, <laughs> and none of them were ones I wanted to hear. <laughs> bang, 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 bang. And I'm just sitting there going, 
where's my dog? I want to go out and kick him. <laughs> something needs to suffer here, you know. <laughs> something needs to, I need to punish something. because I got, And I just had to sit back and go, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm stressing because I'm taking responsibility for things that are beyond my reach. Lord Jesus, when he says be devoted to prayer, you know what that means? That means being devoted to the reality of your dependence upon God in all things. And I just want to say, I prayed and all of my problems went away. Not really. <laughs> I think they're still out there. <laughs> but they're not my problems. They're his problems. That dependency recognizes that why am I carrying stuff that God never gave me the strength or even expected me to carry? He said, cast your cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. The government shall be upon his shoulders, not yours, his. And when we learn that, then we become men and women of prayer. Because we, we go through every day in the sense of, I depend upon God for the very composition of my molecular being. He is causing my body to consist. Why am I worrying about growing old? We're carrying stuff that we can't control. Our life is in His hands. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to hear Paul's argument and his, his, his whole polemic behind this letter and that we would take it to heart, that we would recognize, Lord, that you are the Lord of the universe and that you hold everything in your hands from the largest thing to the smallest thing. And then when it comes to my life and our life, Lord, that you are in control not only of the big problems, but you're even in control of the little things. We can depend on you because you are sufficient, you are supreme, and you are our Savior, and you paid the price. You took that bill that was with all of our sins written on it, and you paid it in full and made us complete before you, that I don't have to look in the mirror and criticize what I am, but Lord, I can just begin to rejoice because not only am I fearfully and wonderfully made, but I have been forgiven of my sins and you have a plan and a purpose that exceeds my knowledge or even the ability to comprehend that will bring glory to you and will be for my rejoicing throughout all eternity. Lord, you've given us permission to start that party right now, to start celebrating that fact in this very moment. Lord, I pray that you just persuade our hearts to enjoy you, we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Praise God. Why don't we stand as we sing together? <clears throat>